0: Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I'm grateful, again, that we get to gather together. And we've already, we've prayed together, we have sang together, we have greeted one another. And all of this, God, is our our act of worship here as we corporately gather to praise your name together. And this morning, God, as we turn our attention to your word and to uh, to try to read it and understand it, God, I pray that we would understand it and with spiritual wisdom, that you would reveal to us knowledge, that we would understand your word and that we would understand your will and that we would live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. God, I pray that we would be challenged by your word this morning, we would be equipped and that we would be empowered. To live the life that you've called us to. Help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage talks about Paul's prayer for the Colossians. He has talked about their reputation, and and we you can go back and listen to the message last week to get a little bit more um, background information. But Paul is writing to this church that he has never met in person. They're his spiritual grandchildren. Um, through Epaphras. And so he is writing to them, wanting to encourage them. And he encourages them by telling them about this reputation that they had of, of faith, love, and hope. And now he moves on to saying, and this, this is what I've been praying for you. Ever since I've heard about you, I have been praying for you. And he talks about that you would know and understand the will of God. And that phrase probably jumps out. If you just read this passage, I think a lot of people would, would kind of cling on to that, to know and understand the will of God. And, and that whole thing can feel like a very confusing thing, a very confusing um, idea or, or something that's hard to grasp. And I've said many times that's probably the number one question I get as a pastor. Like most of the time when somebody comes to to talk to me or um, to, to see what the Bible has to say about something, it's typically because they have a decision to make and they want to know what is God's will, what is God's plan? And if you've been around here at all, you know that my answer is most of the time is that 98% of what God is calling us to do, 98% or so of the will of God is explicitly stated in Scripture. That it is not something that is this crazy, mysterious thing that I have to try to figure out. That the vast majority of the things that would be, we would consider the will of God are explicitly stated. He lays it out for us. He tells us how we are to live, who the people that we are to be and that the people we are in Christ. And that, but that we tend to focus on that other 2%, the stuff that isn't clearly explicitly stated about like where to live or where to work or who to marry or what to do in a particular situation. And we tend to ignore the 98%. We tend to kind of gloss over that and say, well, yeah, yeah, I know day to day I'm supposed to be like this, but, but what am I supposed to do here? One of the things I enjoy, I mean, as you probably know, I do, I do love sports. I grew up around sports. And one of the things I always dreamed about when I was younger was um, if if you ever seen like on commitment days or national signing days, there's this recruitment process that happens for high school athletes. So high school athletes that are, that are good enough, they get recruited by colleges. And if they're really good and everybody wants to know where they're going to go um, for school, they'll have like this press conference. And they'll set out a lot of times what they'll do is they'll set out different hats in front of them of the different schools that they'd narrowed their choices down. And so they might have like University of Wisconsin, University of Michigan, you know, and and Notre Dame or something like that. And they'll have it sitting out there and then they'll just kind of stand there and they'll say, "Okay, um, I made my decision. And then they'll put one of the hats on. They'll take one of the hats and put it on and everybody will cheer or or boo or whatever they'll do. But there's all of this weight going into that. And I always think about how much stress there must be leading up to making that decision. Like, that feels like a monumental decision, right? For, like, if you're an athlete who wants to go and play in the NBA, for example, or in the NFL, then the decision about where you're going to school, they'll talk about that as the biggest decision in their lives, And I can understand why they would say that and why other people would look at that. It seems like such a big deal. That's what all the press is there for. That's what all the cameras are there. That must be the biggest decision. And yet that one decision pales in comparison to the thousands of decisions that came before that. The thousands of smaller decisions. The decision to go to bed early instead of staying out late. The decision to to eat the healthier option rather than like the cake. The decision to get up early and work out rather than sleeping in. The decision to stay after practice working on their shot instead of going home and playing video games. See, the reality is that for, say, say it's a young man making that decision, where that young man chooses to play college basketball doesn't matter nearly as much as the thousands upon thousands of decisions that came before it. And I think that's a lot like our Christian walk. We make a really big deal about the really big decisions or the big talking points. We make that about like, you know, what job to work or who to marry, and I'm not saying that those things don't matter. I'm not saying that God doesn't care about those things. I'm saying that those decisions are basically meaningless without the thousands upon thousands of decisions we make to be faithful or not to be faithful every day. For example, you can choose the right job. You can be faced with this decision and an angel of the Lord could come down and say, the will of God is that you work at this company. But how will you work at that job? Will you be a light in the midst of darkness at your workplace? Or will you give in to a culture of complaining and discontentment? That matters more. You can marry the right person. You can be in a situation where you say, okay, God, tell me, who am I supposed to marry? But the question that is so much bigger than that is how will you love and serve that person? How will you live in the midst of that? You can buy the right house and choose the right neighborhood. But if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't matter. So you could actually choose the wrong neighborhood, choose the wrong job, and be the neighbor Jesus has called you to be. That's why I say those things are so small in comparison. And Paul has some things here to address with this church in Colossae. But he first lays a foundation here that everything else flows from. His prayer for them is not just that they would understand these right doctrinal issues that he needs to lay out or specific things about how they should live. He has to lay a foundation of the heart behind it. Something that will lay a foundation for them to be faithful and in the will of God moment to moment, day by day. Because he knows that getting the, the facts of the, of the big issues of the faith right, getting these big talking points right, and believing the right things about these certain things, or making the right decisions, he knows that they won't do any good without understanding the moment-to-moment will of God and what it means to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And so he prays this. He says, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Notice, notice something here, just a really quick side note here. I felt convicted when I was reading this passage, and actually it was just this morning, that I was just rereading the passage and praying through it and thinking, how often do I pray for those who are doing well? So notice this. Paul loves the church in Colossae. He thinks they're doing great. They have this incredible reputation. And he says, so from the day we heard of this fantastic reputation, we've not ceased to pray for you. I don't know about you, but most of my prayers are for people and myself when we're not doing well, right? Like our prayer lists are full of people who are sick or who are struggling. And we definitely should pray for people in those situations. Like, please pray for me in those situations. Pray for one another in those situations. But I also want us to to learn to pray for increasing knowledge and fruit in the lives of people who are exhibiting that fruit and knowledge. So this is what he prays. He prays for this knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And notice something important here of what he says. He he says he prays for them to be filled with the knowledge. Now that's that's a passive Phrase, And that's important because this isn't about... He's not telling them, okay, I want you to study hard and memorize your facts. Make sure that you know everything that that we are saying to you. What he's saying is, I'm praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. It is a knowledge that comes from the Lord. In other places, Paul has called this to have the mind of Christ. In his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And basically what this is, is this, this idea to, to um, with wisdom, to think and act spiritually. It's like to, to really oversimplify, this idea of being filled with the knowledge of God and spiritual wisdom is just the idea, it's the ability to think and act in a way that is spiritual and that is not fleshly, and it may seem straightforward, but it is a wisdom and an understanding that and knowledge that has to come from God, it is not something that can just come from within us. You can't just study your way into this kind of understanding or knowledge, it has to be revealed to you because it's not a human knowledge or wisdom. Many people especially in our culture that so values education and knowledge, try to live the Christian life by listening to some sermons, reading a devotional, and then trying to figure out things the best that they can. So, so they take this input, this counsel, they, they receive this, they read a few things, listen to some things, find that interesting, put it into the hopper with their mind and their own reason, their own thoughts, and then say, okay, now that I've heard all this, now I'm just going to figure out how to live my life the best way that I know how. And basically what happens is you make up your own law shaped around your own preferences, views, and opinions. But here's what Paul knew and what he was relaying to this church and what we know is that if you are following Jesus, you will be faced at times with going against what makes sense to you in that moment. If you are following Jesus, you will sometimes go, be confronted and be called to go against what seems right to you in that moment. What makes sense to you in that moment. And you may feel like, well, that sounds awfully dangerous. Well, not nearly as dangerous as the alternative. Because what I found is that many Christians in our culture can't handle that concept. They say, you know what, I I love the Bible, I love God, I believe in Him, I believe in Jesus, but at the end of the day, I have to do what makes sense to me. And so I'll start to kind of twist Scripture and fit it to where it it fits what what I think is right, what I think is best. And I see that when confronted with biblical truth. We'll do those different things. And and just ultimately, when all else fails, if I can't twist it or justify or evade or ignore when all that else fails, then then I'll just say, well, I'm just not doing that. That doesn't make any sense to live like that. Listen, always doing what makes sense to you, always following your heart, is elevating your own understanding above God's. And when you get to that place, you will take God's advice. You might listen to other godly people and kind of consider it. But ultimately, you trust in you and your own wisdom. And the Bible says that leads to destruction. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So, what he's saying here is simply be not wise in your own eyes. Like, don't reach the end and say, Well, this makes sense to me, so I'm good but rather turn to the Lord and fear him and say, does this line up with him? Paul wants the Colossians to think in that way. It happens with being filled with the knowledge by the Holy Spirit to have the mind of Christ, to think of things with the, about things in the, with the mind of Christ. That is spiritual wisdom. And as James says, if you lack it, Ask for it. James 1:5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. And we desperately need this today, church. We desperately need to be a people who have the mind of Christ and who are willing to confront our own conclusions about things, our own opinions, our own preferences, our own things that we've always thought and submit them to Christ and say, I want to have the mind of Christ. And why does he pray this prayer? Like, why are they to have the mind of Christ? He says, verse 10 so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, the reason he wants them to, to see things in this way, to have all this knowledge and to understand the will of God, is, is not to impress people with their knowledge. It's, it's not to be seen as being right all the time or to be seen as being moral people. It's not to beat the Ephesians in a Bible quiz bowl. It's not any of those things. It's, it's to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's a tough standard. Anybody want to raise their hand and say, I, this describes me. My life day to day, I walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Anybody? Yeah. That's a hard thing to say, right? Like none of us could actually say that fully. So what does Paul mean? Like that's a really impossible standard. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? How in the world could I live my life day to day in a way that is worthy of Jesus Christ? Well, he gives us a, a hint. He says, fully pleasing to him. So we're going to start there. I want to ask this question Do you, when you're facing any situation where you have a reaction in front of you, any interaction with the person, any decision to make, do you ask the question, What is most pleasing to the Lord right now? What reaction would be the most pleasing to the Lord? What decision would be the most pleasing to the Lord? Or, Do we ask, do you ask the question of, well, what's the right thing to do here? I was just talking to my dad about this in the last couple of weeks about how many of us were raised to, with the mindset of like, we'll do the right thing. Like, think about what is the right thing to do right now and do it. And we we kind of even instruct our, our children to do that. But the problem with that is that it's a very subjective thing to think about what is right in any given moment in my own eyes. Like if, if the barometer is, what do I think is the right thing in this moment? That can change from minute to minute. I don't know about you, but there have been so many times in my life where I have done or said what I thought was right in the moment, only later to be convicted of that and to feel conviction over it. Anybody with me in that? Yeah. That's a much easier one to raise your hand to, right? Yeah, that's how I feel. There have been so many times, so often I've said things that in that moment. But here's the thing about that. In those moments when I've said or done those things, if the question in my mind is, well, what's the right thing right now? Then that's when I get carried off into that. But if I would stop and ask, what is pleasing to my Jesus right now. Even in my most irrational moments, there will be some part of me that will say, not that. Not saying that. Not having that attitude. See, if my filter is just what is right, then I can find myself justifying all kinds of behavior and thoughts. But if the, what if the question changes to what is pleasing to you, Jesus? And not... Theoretically or hypothetical or about some person that lived in the past. But that second person type question. Jesus, what is pleasing to you right now? What words should I say to my wife? What should I do right now for my coworker? How should I respond to my neighbor? Jesus, you tell me. I mean, think about that. If someone expresses that they're hurt by something you said, they're offended by something that you said. If my question in that moment, if someone says that to me, Jay, what you said there offended me, if my question is, well, what is right? Well, then I can justify all kinds of things. And I will tell you, this is a struggle for me. This may shock you, but I I sometimes say things that cause some offense to people. I know nobody here. You all are always super thrilled with everything that I have to say. But there are people who sometimes get upset with me. And when they say that, when they, when they say, you know what, this upset me, this offended me, this bothered me. My first thought so often was, is, well, is what I said right? And if that's my first question, guess where that takes me? Defensiveness, justification, arguing. arguing. Is any of that pleasing to Jesus in that moment? No. Those are the questions I ask. If my question is what is right, then I can start justifying things. that Well, they shouldn't be upset. Or I didn't mean it this way. Or what I said was true. Or what about what they said about me or what they do? But what if I think, what is pleasing to the Lord right now? Well, then that answer changes. What is pleasing to the Lord is humility and compassion being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And unfortunately, right now, we seem in the church to be, value far more being right than being like Christ. And you might say, okay, well, then you're saying it's not, does it doesn't matter? Like, it, it doesn't matter who's right or it's not important to be right? What, what if I'm right? Are you saying then that I should just pretend like I'm not? And, well see what scripture says in his first letter to the corinthians paul was in the middle of quite a chewing out of the church when he expresses his grief over the fact that believers were suing each other in front of non-believers so they would have a disagreement and they would actually go to the courts and they would sue one another rather than working it out amongst themselves as brothers and sisters and he says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Think about that question. What would you say if you knew that somebody in the church stole from you and you wanted your stuff back because it was rightfully yours? And if Paul came to you and said, wouldn't you rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather be defrauded? I don't know about you, but I think a lot of us, myself included, would say, no. Like, can I I not honor the testimony of Jesus and get my car back that they stole? Like, look, they're driving away in my car right now. Can we not do something about that? But what is Paul saying? He's saying that the testimony of the church that trusts in God, who is sovereign over all things, who makes all things right, is demonstrated in things like this. And if my focus is on what is right, then I will go down a path of my own understanding. But if my focus is on what is pleasing to the Lord, then that is spiritual wisdom. And then I would understand his will. And you know what? His will may be that I suffer for doing good. It may be that I'm reviled. It may be that I'm wronged. And if you hear that and say, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. Then I would ask who your Lord is, because this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, our goal as the church should not be to make sure that everyone knows that we are right. And to lay out all of our arguments of why we are right. It is to do what is pleasing to the Lord in every situation. Walking in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord is not primarily about passing a test about right and wrong beliefs or understandings or statements or even about morality. It is about honoring him as all sufficient, trusting him with all things, loving others as he has loved you in all circumstances, enduring with patience, bearing fruit in every good work. And you might think, well, how in the world am I supposed to do that? No one's saying it's easy. But Paul talks about where that power comes from. He says in verse 11 being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. This is the power that is available to you if you would just ask for it power to endure all things with patience and joy. See, the the truth is that we can't walk in a manner worthy of our Lord and pleasing to our Lord if we are impatient and joyless. Like, it's just not possible. My actions are not pleasing to the Lord when they are done impatiently and joylessly. We are so often tossed to and fro by every ripple that we go through with life. We, we, are, we are patient when things are going well. We are joyful when, when things are happening the way that we want them to be happening. We're patient when we feel like it, when we're struck by uh, some kind of momentary supernatural strength to just, all right, well, I just happen to react patiently. And then we just kind of settle for that. But there is a power that is available to us one that will cause us to persevere whatever the will of the Lord, to not only understand the will of the Lord. Paul is saying that if if God reveals this knowledge to you, if he fills you with this knowledge and this wisdom, as you're walking through life, you will be filled with the power to patiently and joyfully endure whatever comes. How? Patience, because you're knowing that he is working all things together for good. Not worrying about whether he's fixing everything right in this moment because I know something better is coming. That I know that God is preparing something and whatever he is doing, however he is working and however long it takes him to get to there is going to be far more beautiful than if I just could wave my hands and say, well, fix it right now. I'm sure that many of you are in a situation right now where you could name something that you say, God, I just want you to fix this right now. Just deal with it right now. And that breeds impatience in us, right? But if I would have patience, my patience is there because I trust that God is working it together for good. That he is preparing it. And in his timing, he will reveal his will in that. In his timing, he will bring a resolution to that. Everybody knows what it's like as a kid to be waiting for cookies to be baked in the oven. And everybody knows what happens if you pull those cookies out too early. Like They're not as good. I know that there are weird people here who like to eat cookie dough and get like salmonella and endanger your children. That's fine. But for me, I like to cook the cookie and I like it to be perfectly done. And if you don't wait, that's a problem. We know it's better if you wait. And so we wait for things with Patience. And that knowledge and that wisdom and that patience of understanding who God is and how he works things together will produce joy. If I know something better is coming, I will wait for it with joy. If I know that he doesn't waste any hurt, if I know that he will turn all of the suffering in this moment into rejoicing, if I know that he will take all the injustice in the world and he will bring justice, then I will endure it with joy, looking forward to that, knowing that he is going to do those things. And how do I know he's going to do those things? How do I know he has the power to do those things? Because of the gospel. He says, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you're sitting there thinking... Okay, that all sounds great, but right now I don't feel like that power is available to me. I don't even know what that even looks like or what that means. Here's what it means You were in darkness, you were slaves to sin, which means you had no opportunity to resist the will of your flesh, no opportunity to think with the mind of Christ, no opportunity to live in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. You and I were lost. But he has delivered us from that domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Who has done that? He has done that. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. We didn't sit over here in the domain of darkness and look over there and say, well, that kingdom looks better. I'm going to start this long journey over there. That's not what he does. He takes you And he places you in that kingdom. And the rest of our lives are spent fighting to believe that that is true. And to not live like we lived when we were dead in our sin. In him we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Listen to what he says. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. You haven't qualified yourself. Living in a a way pleasing to the Lord is not to qualify yourself for the inheritance. He has already qualified you for that. The question is just, will you live like you believe that? We're not just delivered from darkness, but we are delivered into marvelous light. We are not just... Freed from slavery to sin, we are freed then and adopted as sons and daughters. That power that dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, it's not a philosophy that gives you some kind of motivation. Jesus is not a martyr that just inspires. It is the power of God dwelling in the heart's of believers. And if there is anything that grieves me in my own life and in the church right now is that we don't live as if that power is real. I have felt so convicted of how often I live my life like Christianity is a philosophy and these beliefs and these values and these things that I adhere to and try to follow and try to do rather than the reality of something that's already been done. Do you see the difference of that? He's already delivered you out of darkness and into marvelous light. He has already redeemed you. He has already forgiven you. He has already secured an inheritance of you through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only way. Your life is not a way of earning those things. Your life is a response to what he has already done. He has already done all of those things through the cross, listen to this, he's already pleased with you. I just want that to sink in for a second. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, through the cross, God is already pleased with you. It doesn't matter what you did this morning. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. If you are in Jesus... He is already pleased with you. He has already secured your inheritance. He has already equipped you and empowered you to do every good work that he has planned for you. He's already accomplished it. And our lives are living in response to that and empowered by it. And I know that makes a lot of us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable because then people will say like, well, then what's to stop? Then it doesn't matter what I do. If you say that, then that is evidence that you are not dwelled in by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will, will scream against that, will convict you of that. This should be wonderful news. This is why it's not a philosophy that you just try to adhere to. It is a power that we live by. And if you want to access that power, we're going to close with communion and we're going to close with just really practical, just a really practical thing. Because that could be the question that you could be left with. You can walk away from here completely believing in this power, that it exists. And that it even can be dwelling in you, believing that this is God's will, but still feel completely powerless, still feel completely stuck. So this is what I want you to do. Number one, and this may seem so beginning level and some of you will just kind of You'll be like, you're, you're going to start to write these things down. I'm going to say this one. And you're going to say, oh, I don't need to know that. I don't need to write that one down. I'll wait for the next one. Number one, it's just ask the question, do you belong to Jesus? And ask him, Jesus, do I belong to you? Have you bought me with your blood on the cross? Have I submitted myself to you as Lord? Do I belong to you? Is my life not my own anymore? the answer to that is no or you say it used to be but that isn't what my life has looked like then I would encourage you that is number one is to just pray that God forgive me I am not my own I have been bought by you I belong to you then the second thing is in every moment, not just the big decisions, but every little micro decision. Try to do that today. Try to think about how many intersections you have on any given day. How many responses to a child who's tired? How many responses to a a spouse who's frustrated? How many responses to, to a person at a restaurant or to your neighbor? How many thoughts come into your mind, like choices of what to do? And start to grab each one of those micro decisions and ask the question to Jesus. Again, Jesus, what is pleasing to you right now? What is pleasing to you? What would be most pleasing and honoring to you right now? Consider it with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Don't defend, don't justify. If the spirit dwells in you, he will answer. And if you're anything like me, you will try to shush it really fast when you really want to say this thing or respond this way. And I'm just saying, fight that fight. Sacrifice your pride. Sacrifice your flesh. Die to yourself. Do what Paul says in Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sacrifice your flesh, your pride, your thoughts of always being right. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's saying, have the mind of Christ, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Present all of that in that little moment as a living sacrifice. God, I want to I respond this way. But this is what I know is pleasing to you. I sacrifice my desire. Your flesh will fight. Your pride will kick and scream. It will use whatever means it has to not surrender. But do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And this will change the way you see things. When the goal is not to be right or to be perfect. It is to demonstrate the love of Christ. Christ. And it takes practice. So you ask Jesus, do I belong to you? Do I really belong to you? Ask about each one of those moments. Is this pleasing? What is pleasing to you, Lord? And then do it in faithful obedience. Just do it. Step out. Confess how you feel about that. But then receive the joy of delighting in the pleasure of your Lord and Savior. Ask someone to walk the road with you. Pick out a scenario and ask for accountability and help. And as you practice this, you will experience the power of the Holy Spirit. You will delight in pleasing the Lord. And when you do that in the small things, this should sound familiar if you're familiar with scriptures. If you do this with the small things, if you are faithful in these small things, then bigger things, greater things will be given to you. I have a lot of people who say, I want my life to matter. You're saying like, look, I, I listen to this. I want, I want to be used in the mission of God. I want to be used to bring people to Christ. I want to be used in these ways. Then be faithful in the small things. You want to be used to share the gospel and to see transformation in people's lives? Then speak kindly to your child in the moment. Be patient with the person who disagrees with you. Listen to the person who is hurting or suffering. And as you do this, as you and I endeavor to do this, we will be filled with the knowledge of his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding bearing much fruit. And always reminded that he has always secured this for us. And we are reminded by that very practically through communion. So if you have... Hopefully you have a, a cup near you, around you. If you are a follower of Jesus, then this is for you. If, if you are not, if you just say, look, I'm, I'm here and I'm considering this, but I'm not a follower of Jesus right now, I don't belong to him, then just you can just take it and you can throw, it, throw this away and just hold on to it. Like, that's, that's the better thing to do because we want you to, to worship here honestly and seek honestly, and so that's totally fine. That's, that's totally normal here. But if you belong to Jesus, then this is a reminder that he has already secured all of these things for you. That because of the work of the cross, he has already secured your inheritance. Because of Jesus, he is already pleased with you. You are not earning His pleasure in you. You are delighting in it. Obedience is not earning God's pleasure; it is delighting in His pleasure. And so we are reminded of that as we peel off the top layer. I'm going to be so glad when we can stop doing it this way. But it doesn't change what we're remembering. It doesn't change what Jesus has done. And he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, This is my body broken for you. It's already done, it's already secured. Take this and eat in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he passed it. He said, This is this is my blood he talked about his blood being poured out for the new covenant. It seals us. It's through this blood that we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. And so we drink in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Father, we... honestly, God, as I just sit here and I just consider all of these things that I've been studying over and preparing and and sharing, God, it still is a mystery to me. How is it that you are pleased with me? How is that possible? It is only possible through Jesus. Jesus. We love because you first loved us. We walk in a manner worthy of you because, Jesus, you walked in that manner for us. You have secured for us an inheritance. You have secured for us an eternity. You have secured for us the redemption, forgiveness of our sins our adoption as sons and daughters. You have already done those things for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God, I pray right now that you would reveal to us in our hearts, do we belong to you? And God, I pray that for those in this field that who would say yes, that we would rejoice in that. And for those who would say, no, I don't know, God, that they would meet you right now. You would meet them and that you'd rescue them and that you would awaken them their hearts would be stirred and that they would say, today, today, I submit myself to you. I lay down my life. I receive your forgiveness and redemption. I belong to you. God, we pray that we would be filled with this supernatural knowledge, this, that we would have the mind of Christ to your glory and for our unending joy. Amen.